And now I'll introduce our, head table, our, uh, our special guest. Like many of us, our guest today has been through some economic times, and has seen some economic times. And truth be told, he and we can expect to see them again. As president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada, IAC, an organization that advances the growth and development of Canadian investment industry, Ian Russell represents a membership of companies that are dedicated to helping build prosperity and investment security for investors and their families. Lately, it's been a tough gig. We all understand this recession is a global issue, and as Ian acknowledged recently to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance, it's going to take some time for things to get back on track. Many of us have wondered, I'm sure, about the government's distribution of stimulus money, whether the programs are effectively accomplishing what they're supposed to do. Besides making Toronto's traffic jams even worse than usual with road construction and detours, Ian believes that now our focus must be to the future, to making refinements and reforms that will prevent a repeat of the market contraction that has been devastating for so many people over the last year or two. The IAC that he leads represents over 200 member firms which employ over 40,000 Canadians from coast to coast. Ian has been its president since the association's inauguration in 2006. Prior to his appointment, he headed the, investment, the industry relations and representation group of the Investment Dealers Association, participating in many industry committees and working groups involved in regulatory and tax issues that affect security firms and capital markets in Canada. Here to tell us how smart reforms ensure competitive and sound markets, please welcome President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada, Ian Russell. Thanks, John. We are in the midst of economic times that Dickens would have loved. With global financial markets having experienced the greatest market downturn in 80 years, it is easy to see how this is the worst of times. Moreover, the crisis has quickly crossed over into the broader economy with 10 consecutive months of economic contraction in Canada this year. But that just makes it more important than ever to build for the best of times. To do that, we need to put in place a process for reform, regulatory reform, market reform, and tax reform. We have to get the reforms right within the context of the global initiatives pursued by the G20 group of companies, countries. I'd like to discuss how we must do that in Canada, but first, Let's take a look at where we are now. Clearly, I see the challenge from the perspective of the investment industry. The industry's job is to connect people who have capital with people who can use it to create wealth. Looking at the economy from that perspective, one sees some good news. In the years since the meltdown in global financial markets, governments and regulators have succeeded in restoring market stability. Canada has fared well compared to most other developed economies. We can see some green shoots in the Canadian economy, but we are still not out of the woods. There is, in fact, still a lot of bad news. Although equity markets have recovered considerably and show signs of stabilizing, they remain well below the peak levels of 2007. Investors have seen their portfolios devastated, putting at risk the retirement prospects of millions of Canadians. 
Corporations have seen their ability to raise capital squeezed, undermining the economy's ability to grow. Several trends are delaying Canada's economic recovery. Our manufacturing sector continues to struggle. Resource prices are surging but remain quite volatile. And our export sector is badly hampered by appreciation of the Canadian dollar and the decline of the greenback. Business spending is modest. Consumers feel stuck between the rock of the recession and the hard place of a shortfall in their retirement savings. How do we get from the tight squeeze in which our economy is stuck? We need to introduce government reform, smart reforms, and pursue them in a smart way. First, we need to identify priorities. What should be the focus of regulatory reform in Canada? Second, we need to ensure coordination and cooperation among all relevant regulatory jurisdictions. And third, we must restore Canadians' appetite to take calculated risk. And finally, we must move quickly. First mover advantage means a lot, especially in an era when branding and reputation are so vital. First, let's look at our priorities. Canada avoided the worst of the financial meltdown, but our small open economy is susceptible to any international bumps. The financial crisis exposed the vulnerabilities of our management of systemic risk oversight, and we need to shore that up. Canada stands alone in the world with a balkanized regulatory system focused on local markets, local financings, and transactions between local market participants. In today's global markets, our system is an anachronism. To protect investors, regulation must look both inward and outward. It must be sufficiently localized to ensure the integrity of the investment process and sufficiently centralized to focus on broad market developments. The financial crisis underlines the importance of a single Canadian entity to strengthen the oversight of systemic risk. What do we need? We need a Canadian securities regulator to monitor developments closely in national and global capital markets, to coordinate with other domestic and international regulators, and to respond with reforms as needed, as rapidly as required, with the resources required. When it comes to managing risk, one partner in the capital markets is not at the table. A Canadian securities regulator must fill that role as a partner to participate with the Bank of Canada, the Department of Finance, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, and CDIC. A national securities regulator can bring one-stop efficiency and consistency to Canadian regulation, replacing a patchwork quilt of multiple regulators. And it can provide an effective national decision-making and rule-making forum to address emerging issues, such as the increased transparency of derivative products, improvements in capital markets infrastructure, including clearing and netting systems for debt securities, and an efficient framework for regulating multiple market trading systems. The federal government's Canadian Securities Transition Office has made a significant start. Under the former BC regulator Doug Heinemann, 
the transition team is beginning the work of bringing together a Securities Act and devising a plan to introduce a single regulator. Just last month, an advisory committee was appointed with 10 of Canada's provinces and territories participating. Canada is a big country, but it has been able to tie its geography together for over 120 years through the National Railroad, through telecommunications technology, and through our banking system. Now, in the 21st century, Canada must strengthen its links between local markets and local regulation. This will build a national market needed to compete effectively in a globalized world. Our second goal must, to be, must be to ensure cooperation and coordination among all relevant jurisdictions. Investment must be a global activity. Capital must be free to move to where it will do the most good for investors and for local economies. Where would Canada be if not for foreign capital, starting with investment from Great Britain in the 19th century? We need a well-regulated and systemically secure global marketplace. That means regulation must be globally consistent, focused on identifying and remedying the key causes of the global financial crisis. Fortunately, the G20, under the aegis of the Financial Stability Board, has identified several key areas for reform. The financial crisis has brought home the need for comprehensive oversight and responsive regulation to mitigate systemic risks in the midst of financial innovations, new participants, and different trading patterns in global markets. That's why we need effective oversight of macroprudential risks to the financial system. Of course, capitalism is based on risk. When any institution has reason to believe it is too big to be allowed to fail, that eliminates the discipline that risk imposes. That problem has not gone away. In fact, several institutions have gotten even bigger by acquiring failed competitors. The too-big-to-fail problem has to be remedied through required plans for orderly wind-up, through surcharges on institutional size, or through structural solutions such as the repeal of some of the ownership liberalization we saw in the 1990s. The G20 process has also identified the need to improve capital rules and standards, such as through the cycle margining, and regulations governing hedge funds and so-called shadow banks. It has identified the need to ensure sufficient liquidity in debt markets under stress, including structural reforms such as clearinghouses for over-the-counter securities and efficient netting systems for debt securities to ensure greater liquidity in periods of market stress. And it has identified the need for better disclosure and transparency of complex derivative securities. The crisis showed that even sophisticated investors have insufficient information and understanding to judge the market and credit risks of these instruments. The failing pointed to the ancillary need for tighter regulation of credit rating agencies that proved inadequate in assessing the risks of many of these complex securities. All of these issues are global issues. 
jurisdictions need to avoid the temptation to overly customize regulation to address what they think are unique characteristics of their markets. Significant differences in regulatory standards can lead to regulatory arbitrage with some participants in the capital markets probing for soft spots where it might be easier to do business. Over the past six decades, we have made enormous progress in reducing tariffs and non-tariff barriers in financial markets and in markets for traded goods. There is no reason why we cannot make similar progress regarding regulation. A good example of where we need global consistency is the regulation of credit rating agencies. The rating agencies in Canada and abroad fail to assess adequately the overall credit and liquidity risks in derivative markets. There is clearly a need for more robust analysis and better disclosure. But we must not try to solve the problem in different ways in different countries. Given the international nature of today's financial markets, we need a level global playing field for credit ratings. A rating cannot mean one thing in Europe and a very different thing in Canada. Investors have a right to consistent standards that are easy to decipher, not a global hodgepodge. Both the SEC in the United States and the the Committee of European Securities Regulators, or CESR, are looking into reforms. Fortunately, the CESR has proposed establishing an international body to develop standards for rating agencies that will monitor how well they are observed. It is vital that rules in areas like rating regulation and transparency and efficient clearing are globally consistent. That is essential to reduce barriers to market entry, diminish market distortions, and discourage regulatory arbitrage. As I mentioned, capitalism is based on risk, but battered investors have been left skittish. Equity financings for small businesses in particular have collapsed over the past two years. In the first six months of this year, Canadian equity financings of under 10 million in size fell to about 60% of what they were in the comparable period in 2007. And this year, the decline has been even steeper. Equity financings in the first six months of this year were about half of what they were in the comparable period last year. The Canadian economy will only become more productive if Canadian investors get back into the game. They play a vital role providing liquidity and promoting the price discovery process. We improve the appetite for calculated risk if we make our capital gains taxes more competitive. If Canada is to improve productivity and compete effectively, we need an efficient avenue for the supply of risk capital for productive investment. Instead, our current capital gains tax rates stand as a roadblock. They discourage the flow of scarce capital, and they deter investment, especially of risk capital. And they impede the transfer of capital to more productive investment, undercutting the very purpose of capital markets. Higher capital gains tax rates translate into lower investment. Right now, that's the last thing that Canada needs. What Canadians do need is reduced effective capital gains tax rates for the common shares 
of public companies, especially small and medium-sized businesses. The federal government should reduce the capital gains tax rate for small public companies. Narrowly focused capital gains tax relief would limit the fiscal cost and put small public companies on a more balanced footing with small private companies that benefit from lower corporate tax rates, R&D tax credits, and the $750,000 capital gains tax exemption. In conjunction with capital gains relief, a tax-assisted opportunity to rebuild the savings for Canadians close to retirement would boost confidence and sharpen risk appetite. The government could enable older Canadians to make retroactive contributions to their TFSA accounts from after-tax income. Think about the impact of such reforms, particularly on common equity shares. It would spur the creation and growth of businesses. It would stimulate the creation of jobs better than could be hoped for from any government spending stimulus program. And reducing or eliminating capital gains taxes on common equity shares would not likely have a significant impact on government coffers. High effective capital gains tax rates discourage economic activity. That just holds down tax revenues. If we are to tax wealth, then first we have to create it. But in all these areas, time is of the essence. The global reform process is well underway. We have to make sure that people recognize Canada as a good place to invest, a place where the rules are clear and investment is welcome. The countries that secure that kind of niche are the countries that move first to address their market shortcomings. Some of these initiatives, such as the single regulator, are already ongoing. The forthcoming federal budget offers the opportunity to implement tax reforms to promote the savings investment process for capital formation and business competitiveness. It is said, moments of crisis produce in man a redoubling of life. So too, responding effectively to the recent financial crisis will breathe new life and vibrancy into our markets and economy. Yes, Canada and all other countries face challenges, but we also have opportunities. Canadians have the skills and the education, the resources, and the infrastructure, and all the other essential components that allow us to create wealth and improve our living standards. But we need a regulatory system that complements that. In a fast-paced world, we need a regulatory structure that can keep up. We need a tax structure that encourages risk and holds open the opportunity of comparable reward. We need smart reforms for long-term results. By reforming our regulatory structure, cooperating as appropriate with other jurisdictions, and improving our tax system to encourage investment and growth, we can not only recover lost ground, but we can move forward in providing opportunity and prosperity for all Canadians. Thank you. Well, as John said, um, I'm more than happy to take any questions.
on uh, this topic or uh, on any other topic in the financial policy or market or industry uh, area that you might you might have a question or a query. I just <clears throat> thank you for that very interesting speech. Um, maybe you can give us your views on where we're going with the national securities regulator. I know that's a, an issue that's near and dear to many people's hearts. Right. Well, thank you for the question. It is a, uh, a topic that uh, is of uh, considerable interest to our industry, and our industry has been strongly supportive of uh, uh, a single regulator, and I think the crisis has demonstrated more than anything else the need to get on with it, and we are getting on with it. I think the Decision taken, decisions taken in the, in the last federal budget, Susan, um, um, give us probably more confidence than ever before that uh, another commission or report will finally be translated into action. We have a transition team. Well, we have the Canadian Securities Transition Office uh, headed by Doug Heinemann, who's probably uh, one of the most experienced uh, hands to, uh, to actually run something like that. Uh, Brian Davies, former chair of C CDIC, and uh, Larry Ritchie uh, are his partners in the in the exercise, and they've uh, brought together a, 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 a pretty good group. And um, they're in the process of mapping out a plan, and I'm sure they'll deliver the plan. It's to uh, come up with a federal securities uh, act by March, and then um, by June to have a formal plan of implementation. I think they know the uh, the potholes in the road. Uh, they know where the obstacles are, and I think they'll be pretty effective in uh, dealing with the task at hand, certainly in putting an act together and putting an infrastructure together. And um, they've, they're long veterans at this battle as well, and they understand that it is highly charged and highly political, but I think they're negotiating their way through it. So I think the, uh, the basis of, um, of the process will be in place by mid-next year, and then they'll start, they'll carry on. And, and they do have an advisory committee, and I think what that will do is, as, as Doug said to me, the, uh, the business plan to put in place in June is really a vision document. And I think it will have a vision, and I think it won't take much for most of the provinces to join in the exercise formally and move forward. Who knows uh, where the objecting provinces are going to be. There will also be a constitutional battle, but from everybody I've talked to, uh, from the legal profession to, uh, again, people well experienced in the past, uh, there's no question about uh, our jurisdiction. And I think the decision of the Supreme Court will add another bit of momentum to it. So I think that by the time we get to the end of next year, I think we'll be well on the way. I'm more convinced than ever that it will be a reality. Yes, lady in the barb. Didn't see in the spotlight there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a question. I have read a number of pieces you've been writing. Um, one of the big changes in Canada and elsewhere is the change in demographics, where you have people that will be working for periods, stopping for periods, high salaries for periods, low salaries for periods, and so on. And you had, I believe, in an op-ed recently spoken of a different approach to RSPs than up to an 18% maximum of salaries. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on that. I think it was something you said was in place in England. Yeah, that's right, Barb. It was, um, I guess it was about a, about a year ago. But what we have is we have um, an RSP plan, as you say, that's uh, the lesser of 18% of your income or the defined uh, ceilings, um, which uh, are an annual contributory uh, 
um, amount that uh, can go in um, by each and every Canadian. And what we're trying to do is to tackle really the problem that um, a lot of uh, middle-income Canadians have in using that vehicle to build sufficiently for their retirement. The ceilings themselves are probably not sufficient. We've argued that for long periods of time. But as you say, there are some structural problems. One of them is uh, incomes can be volatile for some Canadians coming in and out of the workforce. And um, in periods where they have significant income, they're um, unable to use the full ceiling. Um, but the other thing that uh, really brought it home is that in 2008, we had some devastating losses by the, in the, the RSP portfolios, lots of Canadians, and um, they deserve an opportunity to um, probably refill, to refill those uh, portfolios. Uh, defined Canadians who benefit from defined benefit plans, uh, their sponsors have that opportunity to uh, uh, replenish um, those funds so that they can make their ultimate commitments uh, to their beneficiaries, and we've talked about there are many examples in the press of that. Well, similarly, Canadians who rely on their RSPs, a lot of self-employed Canadians, should have a similar opportunity to uh, put in significant amounts. And so that is the reason, the primary reason why we looked at something rather than an annual cap, look at a lifetime cap, look at um, a lifetime cap that would be defined as, say, the um, accumulated uh, value of a pension at the end of a working life. And you can pick any number on it. Uh, for a civil servant with a defined benefit plan, uh, earning in the area of the seventy-five to hundred thousand dollars with a sort of five-year average income, maybe it works out to a million dollars. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the ceiling, but give that amount um, uh, to uh, Canadians and uh, and then let them uh, meet that amount uh, however they want to. That's the system that's in place in the UK, and uh, that isn't a cost to government. That's giving Canadians more flexibility. So uh, that, along with, um, I think, the, uh, the RIF measure um, and the TFSA, retroactive TFSAs, are other ways that we felt we can really help this um, older group of Canadians approaching retirement that aren't going to be beneficiaries of the structural reforms that are now the rage um, in, among the policymakers. Um, those are some great ideas around that, but those are long-term solutions. We need something that can um, work more quickly uh, for uh, for um, baby boom Canadians, and that's the reason we promoted that. Thank you, Bart, for the question. Within the context of uh, too big to fail, yeah. you made a reference to ownership uh, limits. Uh, what do you have in mind? Are you thinking in terms of like the Canadian yeah. widely held rule? Yeah, Marion, that's that's a good question. It's that that again is a subject that's uh, um, been talked about quite a lot in the press. Uh, it was raised by Mervyn King in the UK. Uh, basically saying that, and I'm not sure where the threshold level is, and he didn't really define it, but at some point, institutions, certainly Citigroup would fall into that category, are just far too big to be allowed to fail because of the market consequences and the intricate interconnectedness of those institutions. You can also argue they're too big to manage as well. So when they reach a certain threshold, um, you would e make a decision on, uh, you can't you can't grow any, any bigger, and uh, um, I think um, Mervyn King talked about it in, in the um, converse of that. He talked about uh, institutions, large institutions need to be broken up. I think Paul Volcker and uh, George Schultz have talked a, a little more subtly about uh, 
uh, maybe we should bring back a version of uh, Glass-Steagall where uh, the combination of uh, commercial and investment banking should be split among certain lines. And Volcker talked about um, particularly the trading of uh, securities, marketable securities should really fall into the investment bank, into an invest a completely separate investment bank. It's interesting when you stand back and look at the debate, um, it does carry a lot of merit, although it's, um, it's going to be very complicated to design the policy, and there's, again, different suggestions um, for the policy. And there's also opposition. There's, uh, the U.S. administration is very opposed to it, and I know my counterparts in the U.S. are opposed to it, uh, mainly because it's, uh, it would force a significant change in the status quo. Here in Canada, we don't have the same problem because our institutions are they're certainly getting that to, to that size, but right now uh, I don't think they're at the, uh, the size of the behemoths such as uh, J.P. Morgan and, uh, and Citibank. But it, it makes for a very interesting debate. Um, and it's certainly one we haven't seen the end of. I don't think the G20, in listening to Tiff Macklin uh, several weeks ago, I raised the question about structure, structural change, as, as you did, and uh, I, uh, he just indicated to me it's something that they were, it was still being debated and talked about, but what seems to be the more common um, uh, search for a solution to something is, A, can you deal with it through, through capital, sufficient capital cushions, and uh, more rigorous oversight, or through some form of tax, to try to limit size. So it's a, it's very much an open debate. Hi, um, I'm Howard, and I'm a co-op student from the University of Waterloo. And uh, just firstly, wanted to thank you for your speech. Uh, it's really really insightful. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, I just had a question for you about. Um, you mentioned um, how uh, uh, we need incentives to invest in small business once again because there were skittish investors. And you mentioned that there's uh, tax credits and RSPs. Um, what other incentives do you think that uh, government and businesses can do, especially uh, for a young investor like myself, once I pay off my student debt? Um, <laughs> what, what other incentives do you think that uh, you, you could, government and business could do to provide for, uh, for uh, people like us? So. Well, um, I think um, what, what, what we've been talking about in our industry, I think what, what's needed, Howard, for you and your and your colleagues is uh, opportunity. You, you've got the talent, and I think that's the most frustrating part about uh, um, uh, the economic scene as we see it now. Uh, a lot of people with a lot of talent and looking for, and and a lot of ideas, and and being able to employ those ideas uh, productively in the economy. So, um, I must say that coming from Waterloo, it's it's probably on the leading edge of uh, of business formation, where there's just this. In, in various parts of Canada, certainly in the West Coast in Vancouver and in Montreal and Waterloo is a classic example of that, is the linkages between government and business are very strong. So you're fortunate to be in that environment and in that crucible in Waterloo where um, you, you, if you have good ideas, somebody's going to see the ideas and somebody's going to fund it. So you can always find the angel investors. And that is so important because I think venture capital, former venture capital, has not worked maybe as efficiently as it should. And some of the, these other financing, financing vehicles for private companies haven't worked um, as efficiently as they'd originally been envisioned. But I think the angel investing on the ground uh, has proved to be very, very effective. And one of the things we're arguing for is once you reach that uh, size where it's sufficient to list and then get your name out there and, um, and have some reporting 
financials. Uh, that's when you uh, are making your name known to more and more investors, and that's when you, uh, those investors could really use some kind of a tax incentive to encourage them to take the risk because there are no dividends on the stock a very small company would pay. Um, and so if you can get a tax break, then that, that, would, be, uh, that would be very helpful. And, uh, and the problem now is that there are tax breaks for small private companies. The, the tax act, federal tax act, has a definition of Canadian-controlled private corporations. But what we're arguing for is, is um, in order to get onto the stock exchange and have the advantage of uh, attracting capital, if we had a tax incentive that was placed for those companies, it would be, it would be uh, a, a good thing. Okay. And thank you very much for your questions, and thank you very much for coming out to hear me this afternoon. Thanks, Ian. I'd now like to call on Chris May, Director of the Canadian Club, to come up and thank our speaker. Chris? Well, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, thank you, Ian, for joining us today and for helping to put some focus and context around the state of the world's economy and what it means for us here in Canada. While as a nation we've come through somewhat better than others, the recession has still taken a heavy toll, and especially so on the baby boomers who are either at or approaching retirement age with not much time to recoup those losses. Clearly, it's time we started to move forward again to make the changes that are needed to offer investors better protection and the security in the future. Thank you to the IIAC for acting both as a watchdog and advocate for investors and the organizations that are helping us to create wealth. And thanks for making a point of speaking us, with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, and thank you again, uh, Ian, for your, uh, for your talk. We really appreciate that. And, uh, and also thanks to the Investment Industry Association of Canada for making today possible. This concludes our television programming. Um, we'd like to thank Rogers and 680 News for their continued promotion and support of our Canadian Club events, and also they will be airing this uh, throughout the next couple of days um, on, uh, on, their various, on their various channels. So this meeting is now concluded. Thank you all for coming, and have a good afternoon. Thank you.